Okay, our scripture reading today will be from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 18, this is the word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already done in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be done among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. <clears throat> Thanks, Kyle. All right. Yeah, so we're starting a new series in Ecclesiastes. We'll be in here for, for a few months uh, trying to, to understand it. Um, so, so we all probably know uh, a few people who pride themselves as straight shooters. Uh, they just tell it like it is, and they don't mind ruffling some feathers from time to time. And, and you can kind of tell they, they kind of even like to do that a little bit. Um, they're often a bit cynical. They, they kind of cringe when somebody gives a, a pat answer to a, to a tough question. Uh, they have a hard time enduring those eternal optimists that always see everything as good, seem to water down the bad, seem to bury their heads in the sand whenever kind of life and reality are, are, are coming at them. Uh, these people can be really annoying, and we need them. <laughs> We need them in our lives. They, they, they tend to push back at our shallow takes, our overly simplistic or overly optimistic views of life. And, and if that kind of person was a book of the Bible, it'd be Ecclesiastes. That, that's what a lot of Ecclesiastes is doing. You know, the, the Psalms are, are continually praising God, praise Him in the morning, praise Him in the evening. And then Proverbs is like, hey, you work hard, life's going to work out. And then Ecclesiastes busts in the door and walks in and says, what does it matter? We're all going to die anyway. And by the way, bad things happen to good people. It's just like, okay. I thought we were having a good time before with Proverbs and Psalms, but that's kind of what Ecclesiastes is like. And so today we're going to dive into the book. We'll be in here, like I said, for for a while, the the, the fall semester. Uh, And we're going to study chapter one today. And I think if we can get our mind around chapter one, we'll be able to get our mind around the, the rest of the book um, and there's three areas we're going to consider. First, we're going to consider vanity. 
the opening line there is all is vanity, which also means meaningless. Uh, some translations probably say meaningless. Uh, second, we'll consider what the preacher says about the monotony of life. And I should say that the preacher is the character that's going to be speaking throughout the book. And then third, we're going to consider what the preacher says about how learning and knowledge causes frustration. That's kind of counterintuitive. Like the, the more you learn and the more you know, you would maybe hope, well, the less frustrated you get. No, this is saying the more you know, the more frustrated you're going to get. So we're going to consider that for a bit. So first, let's start off with vanity. The preacher, as he is called, starts off strong in verse 2 and 3. He says, vanity of vanities, or meaninglessness in some translations, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toll at which he toils under the sun? So the Hebrew word for vanity here is hevel, and that word means vapor. So, so what does he mean when he says that everything is vapor? And why does he follow that statement that everything is like vapor, saying that nothing is gained from all of our toil, from all of our work? So, so the preacher is saying that life is our lives are like a vapor. It quickly vanishes. And then he goes on and says, we don't get much out of our work. There's not a lot to gain from it. So not only is our life quickly vanishing, our work's not that important either. Now, so what I want to do is I want to spend some time on this word hevel that's translated vanity, and that means vapor. Now, one helpful way to understand uh, some words in the Old Testament that are kind of tricky and are translated different ways is, is to kind of follow their, 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 like a match in the New Testament. So if you have a word in the Old Testament and then it matches in the New Testament, then that's going to be helpful. But we can't do it with the English because that's kind of different. So we need to do the original languages there. But the problem with that is the Old Testament is Hebrew and the New Testament is Greek. I hope I'm not losing you in the weeds here. So anyway, so we have this word here in, in Hebrew and a word in the Greek, and you can't match them up except there's this thing called the Septuagint. Sometimes in the middle of the sermon, you know you're getting into the weeds and you just, you just go through it anyway. So the Septuagint is the Old Testament written in Greek. And so what that means is we'll have words that match in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the word for hevel... Uh, the word for vanity, which is hevel, is translated in the Greek, and we see a match in James chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. And in James chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, we read this. James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So in the Septuagint, the Greek word in Ecclesiastes for vanity is the same word that James uses for mist. Here's what I think is interesting. So in Ecclesiastes, we read that life is like a mist, like a vapor, and it says that we don't get much out of our work. So he connects this idea that we don't get much out of our, our, our life is short and we don't get much out of our work and then when James is talking about our life is like a mist, he again connects it to work. He says you shouldn't make future plans because you don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. And that context in James has to do with work. Talk about going into this city or that city and making a profit. So both of these scriptures that use this word are downplaying the importance of work in light of the fact that our lives are like a vapor, like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, let me be clear. The scriptures speak highly about work. 
Work was here in Genesis 1 and 2. Before the fall of man, work was here. So work is good, and the Bible speaks highly of work. But what we see in Ecclesiastes 1 and James 4 is that work is not where we'll find the ultimate meaning. And we cannot and will not know what the future holds. And so, in other words, we tend to overrate the importance of our work. And when you do that, you will see that it is meaningless. And and so for these reasons, putting our hope in our work, finding our identity in our work, will ultimately lead to a sense of emptiness. And, And so if you've crossed over into making your identity about what you do for your work, then you are really close to feeling very empty in your life and thinking, what is the purpose of this? And we need to hear this because we tend to think we are more important than we are. And one of the ways we tend to think we are more important than we are is through our work. That's how we validate our sense of importance uh, often. But our toil, our, our work, whatever it is you're doing now, whatever it is I'm doing, will largely be forgotten and deemed insignificant by almost everyone. Thanks, Ecclesiastes. <laughs> For example, I have four grandfathers. I cannot tell you all their names. I have a guess on, on two. One, I think I might know, the, but definitely there's two. I don't even know their names. I, I don't know what they did for a living. I, I don't know if they were good men or not. I, I don't know if they were well-liked. I don't know if they were mean. I don't know if they could have been godly. I, I don't know what any of them did for a living. I have a couple guesses, but I'm not sure, and the reason I'm not sure is I don't really care. It doesn't matter to me what they did so so long ago. And, and I'd imagine 99% of you are, are probably the same. You don't know what your great-grandfathers did either. For me, even though I owe my existence to them, it's almost like they never existed. They, they are of no importance to my day-to-day life. It's almost like you could say they were a mist that appeared for a little while, and then vanished. Their lives to me are entirely forgotten about. I almost never talk or think about them. This is probably the most I've ever talked about them or ever will talk about them. Their lives to me are forgotten, and certainly their work is forgotten to me. It's meaningless to me, you could say. And like I said, I don't think I've ever known what they did, and the reason I don't know is because I never really cared to ask because I don't really care that much. And I'd imagine that the same is going to be true for all of us. All of us here will, um, will be almost entirely irrelevant to our great-grandchildren. They likely won't even know our names. And that's why what we read in Ecclesiastes 1.10, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And we're often going to feel frustrated with our work, We're going to struggle with the feeling that our work doesn't really matter. And the more you value purpose and meaning in your work and your day-to-day, the more you're going to be frustrated with the lack of purpose that you find in your day-to-day. And we will inevitably be frustrated with our work. And the frustration won't just be there because our job is a bad fit, though that could be part of it. And the frustration isn't there just because the people we work with are difficult, though that could be a part of it. The reason we're going to find our work to be frustrating is because it's been baked into the system. And do you know who baked it into the system? It was God. 
who baked that frustration into the system we live in. I want to consider two scriptures, Genesis 3 and Romans 8. After Adam and Eve turned away from God, God put a curse on Satan, Eve, and then Adam. Satan's curse was, was, uh, included his ultimate defeat. Uh, Eve's curse had to do with childbirth and marriage, and Adam's curse had to do with work. Turn to Genesis 3, uh, and we're going to look at verse 17 to 19. Genesis 3 is when, uh, is when man falls, man turns away from God, and God puts the curse on them. First Satan, then Eve, and then last is Adam. In verse 17, I'll read the curse, what God, how God cursed Adam. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of, the gra- out of it you were taken, or you, uh, out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the ground was cursed. And from that day forward, work would include pain, thorns, and thistles. His work would not be easy. It would be hard. And so you could say that God cursed work. It causes pain, it is difficult, and it is frustrating. And the Apostle Paul might have had Genesis 3 and Ecclesiastes 1 in mind when he wrote Romans 8.20. In Romans 8.20, Paul says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Meaning, God subjected the earth to futility. Futility is not a word we use all the time. It means pointlessness. So what this is saying is that when man fell, part of the curse was that God put the world into a state of pointlessness. And that's how the curse fell on us. And the preacher here in Ecclesiastes is feeling the full weight of it. And is feeling that it is maddening. And I'm sure many of you have felt this way before with work too. And maybe the message of Ecclesiastes is going to help you to feel not so crazy. You've been feeling like something's off, like life seems pointless or meaningless, like you're just spinning your wheels through life. And the preacher saying, you're not crazy. It is a lot like that. And, and, and one of the ways the preacher begins to explain how, how maddening life and work can be is in the relentless monotony of life. And that's my second point I want to talk about, the, the monotony of life. Let's look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 4 through 9. So back in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 4 through 9. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Everything just goes on and on and on. There's such a monotony. Generations come and generations go. As Anne Lamont said, 100 years from now, 
all new people. We're all leaving. We are just passing through, and they'll be doing the same things we've been doing in our lifetime. And, and having, having lived in Starkville for about 15 years now, I know Starkville to be a, a transient town. People come and people go. Uh, it's really sad when people go. It's really fun to have new people come in. And this church looks so different than it did five years ago. And it's going to look a lot different five years from now. Most of you probably won't be here in five years. You're just passing through. Starbucks. That's the plan. You're getting a degree or you have a, a, a job for a, a short season. And you're going to be passing through. And you're doing what thousands of people have done before you. You're just getting a degree, getting a job, and you're moving on. And even if your life is fun and exciting in the season, it's still just the same old movie. Something thousands of people have done uh, before you, and they'll do it after you. You're not the first to do whatever you're doing. Whatever you're doing has been done thousands of times. Our lives are like the sun that runs the same course every day. Life can be painfully predictable, but then like the wind, it seems random too. And then in verse 7, we read this, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. You might think of your bank account like this. Money flows in and money flows out. The next month flows in and flows out. It just keeps on going. It's just this same predictable pattern that can become quite painful. And the same with our work. We do the same thing week in, week out. We put a good week, a good week of work in, and then right as, as it ends, the next week starts, and we start back again. I'm giving a sermon right now. Guess what I'm working on tomorrow morning? Another sermon. And so it's just this monotony of life that can begin to wear us down. Uh, many of you have seen uh, the, the Groundhog Day with, with Bill Murray. Um, you know, he repeats the same day over and over. It's a classic. It's really funny. Um, but it's also a really philosophical movie. And he goes through these different parts where he approaches this monotony different ways. You know, sometimes he goes and just seeks pleasure. Then he becomes despairing. And then he goes all over the map. Um, but it's a, it's a deep movie. It's about an existential crisis that some of us will, will, will go through. Perhaps all of us will go through it. Some, at some point in your life, you'll think, is, is this what my life is, is like? Is, is this what I'm meant to do? Why, why am I here doing what I'm doing? I thought it'd be different. And so this happens at different stages in life, but we are all bound to come to this existential crisis moment. And it's interesting, you know, Bill Murray and the director of Groundhog Day uh, had a little tension. And actually, they, they, were, they were friends and they kind of became not so close after the movie because they were disagreed about how dark it should be. The, the, the director wanted it to be kind of a light and funny movie, and Bill Murray wanted it to be a, a bit darker. But the reason he wanted it to be darker, because this subject is pretty dark. And when, when you begin to feel, and again, I don't know if everybody's felt this, uh, this idea that life is just on repeat, it's not funny. It's dark. It can lead you to the point of despair. So Bill Murray is wanting to show how miserable it is because once you feel that life is a monotony, life is just this unbelievable repeating cycle, you begin to lose your mind. Now, let me move on to my third point and talk a little bit about frustration. And this frustration is connected to growing in knowledge and wisdom. And this is where Ecclesiastes can be so weird. They'll, they'll, there will be some good thing, like grow in knowledge and wisdom. We can all be for that, right? And what he's saying is like, ah, oh, you're just going to frustrate yourself. 
And so let's try to get underneath this and try to see what the preacher's saying. So in Ecclesiastes 1, 16 to 18, we read this. He says, I said in my heart, I've required great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. Here's why. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So you've all heard the saying, ignorance is bliss. It's a phrase that just means, hey, a lot of times it's better just not to know stuff. And in verse 18, it's kind of the opposite side of that coin. Is that to know a lot is not bliss. It actually can be frustrating and really sorrowful. You know, th- this is kind of silly. Um, pretty much all my life, I- I've had a dog. Uh, when I was in high school, I had a dog named Gus. He was a great dog. And, you know, high school, you know, high school can be a really busy time. You got school, you got sports, you got homework, and you're just loaded up with stuff. And there's a lot of, ten- it, can be, it can be a tense time, it can be a lot of pressure. And I remember multiple times walking by Gus on the back patio, and he was just laid out, right? Like we see a lot of our dogs. And I would think, man, that must be nice. It must be nice to be a dog. Just all you got to do is just wake up and chill all day, eat and whatever, right? And so anyway, I would not, we have a dog now, Hank. I'll often will pass by him. He's just sitting there chilling. It must be nice. It, it, it must be nice to be clueless to the world around you because they don't know all the frustration. They don't know all the sorrow that all of our knowledge and wisdom has brought to us. Th- this past year, there was three particularly difficult issues that were unique to this past 18 months or so. Uh, it was COVID, the election, uh, and the, the, the race and justice issue. And, and I guarantee you, the more that you read about any of these three issues, the more frustrated you were about it. After your knowledge increased, your sorrow increased. And after you became more wise, you became more vexed, more annoyed. And look, I'm not suggesting we quit reading and like, hey, let's try real hard not to know anything about anything. But, but and I'm definitely not saying we should make our aim to be blissfully ignorant, though it can be tempting. I'm just saying what Ecclesiastes 1.18 is saying. With an increase in information and knowledge and wisdom comes an increase in frustration. And no matter what side you, you, you landed on the argument with COVID, with the election, or race and justice, no matter what side you landed on, the deeper you dove into it, the more frustrated you got. With an increase in knowledge is an increase in sorrow. With much wisdom is much vexation. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't learn anything. I'm just saying this is what's Ecclesiastes is the realist. He's like, yeah, you want to do a deep dive on these three issues? Just know it's going to come with a lot of frustration. He's just being honest. <laughs> Ecclesiastes is a fun book, right? So here's the idea. Life is meaningless and monotonous and frustrating. Go in peace, right? So, so as I close out today, I, I want to give us a little perspective of how we should approach a book like this, a book like Ecclesiastes. So th- this character, the preacher, he goes on a 12-chapter rant saying a lot of things, Right? But you should know that, that he doesn't get the final word. The, the preacher goes on this rant, but it's not the final word. He's actually bookended by a narrator. You might have noticed it when we started to read. In Ecclesiastes 1.1, we see that this book has a narrator. 
And the narrator introduces the preacher. He says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Most folks say it's Solomon. That's debated some. Doesn't matter all that much. But the preacher begins his rant in in chapter 1, verse 2, and he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then the preacher ends, you can flip over to chapter 12. The preacher ends his rant in chapter 12, verse 8. And guess what he says to end it? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the, 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 the narrator who last spoke in chapter 1, verse 1, picks up his, in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 9, with some closing words, and he sums it up. And we see a summary in chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. And he says this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Here's the big idea of the book of Ecclesiastes. And you have to understand to make, you have to understand this to make sense of the rest of the book. And if you don't understand this, you're going to be off in the rest of the book. The big idea that the preacher is getting across in the book of Ecclesiastes is that apart from God, life is meaninglessness. Life has no meaning apart from God. Because in the end, the only thing that matters is to live your life before God. God does not come and go. His existence is not without consequence, as ours will be. He is the ultimate reality of the universe. He is the ultimate meaning of the universe. And there is no real meaning apart from God. And whatever you try to apply meaning to, your, your job, or we're going to see a long list of things we can apply meaning to, whatever you apply your life to, and if you make that your, your, your chief end in life, as you pursue that, even if you're successful, you're going to find at the end of it, what did I just do? What did I just do these last 20 years? And that's what the preacher's communicating in his 12-chapter rant, is you can pursue all these things, And even if you're successful, you're going to find it meaningless. There is some good news here. Here's some good news. We don't have to spend our lives trying to make a name for ourselves. That's not a good pursuit. We don't have to figure out the deep mysteries of life. We don't even have to be on the right side of whatever issue is going on in our day. We just need to live our lives as if God is there because he is. And so we keep his commands, knowing that he will bring every deed into judgment. He will bring every deed into judgment. And if that is true, and it is, and if we are guilty before this God, and we are, then I pray that God would give us eyes to see that our only hope is not in our work or in our wisdom, but in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, who not only saves us from our sins, but will also save us from the futility and pointlessness that we find so often ourselves trapped in. This sense of pointlessness and meaninglessness that we wrestle with in life, it does have an expiration date. And I mentioned what Paul said in Romans 8.20, that, that God subjected the world to futility, to pointlessness. Let me read that a little bit wider. 
In Romans 8, 19, we read this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So may God help us to set our hope not in finding meaning in our work or in our learning or being smarter in our wisdom, but instead in finding it in the finished work of Christ that untangles this curse of frustration and meaninglessness that we find ourselves in and will give us great meaning, hope, and joy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see where we are looking to find meaning apart from you. There are a lot of things that woo us and call us. There's a lot of things that we think would validate us as being good and worthy. If we are successful towards that end, we will only find it to be frustrating and meaninglessness. So would you help us to set our hope in you and the finished work of Christ and that we would live lives of faithfulness. And Jesus, we ask you to help us towards that end. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.